Welcome to the first In Focus by CNN Portugal with KPMG, our knowledge partner. This is a new content that we hope helps to have important debates about a variety of themes that really matters to companies and people in general. Today, we are going to discuss how can a company be sustainable and profitable at the same time. I guess that's the main goal of our discussion and how important is ESG to uh, the future of economy and the world. Let me start to introduce our two guests this morning, Nicolas Jordan. I will not read your whole CV because it's long, long, long. But uh, uh, Nicolas has nearly 25 years of experience in large company transformation projects and change management in industry and FMCG. He started his career at KPMG in France, and before spending near 20 years in industry, he uh, in the watch uh, industry at Nestlé and Nespresso. Uh, Nicolas, uh, for who don't know, uh, was the main responsible for the whole change in Nespresso business about sustainability. Nowadays, I have an espresso in my in my house, and I recycle my capsules. So he is the main responsible for that. So we have the honor and the pleasure to have Nicholas here with with us today. We have also Pedro Cruz. He is the head of assurance at KPMG Portugal, ESG coordinator partner since October 2021. I will not read the whole CV because he's also uh, very good. Thank you, both of you, for being here with us. Nicolas, I will start with you. Uh, and I will start with the, our main question today. Can a business be sustainable and profitable at the same time? Is that possible? First of all, thank you very much for, for the invitation, Pedro. And uh, good morning, everyone. So it's a very interesting question. When I, when I received the question, I asked myself, but. Uh, should I take the question the other way, like uh, can still be in a business in 10 years' time if, if this business is not embracing sustainability? Because I think what we are facing today is obvious in terms of, uh, of climate crisis, in terms of uh, resource depletion, in terms of biodiversity loss, and so on. So the question is not for business, should we be uh, sustainable or not? The question is how can we transition to sustainability policy in a sustainable way and in a profitable way. So, yeah, Because without profitable, uh, there is no business, right? No, and it's an, ex <laughs> it's an expensive uh, transformation, but we are talking about risk management as well. So for companies, uh, addressing sustainability uh, strategies is really assessing the risk the business is facing of not moving, actually. And a recent survey, to answer your question more, more precisely, a recent survey from an organism called Ecovadis and Bain on about 100,000 companies, they made a survey showing that uh, the more sustainable the company were, the more profitable and uh, resilient mm -hmm. uh, they, they were. So it, it's obvious that, uh, that many companies are, are doing very, very well on that topic. And can you, can you give us one example uh, of one business that has to do that transformation and now is profitable and sustainable at the same time? There are many very profitable business, but I would take just maybe one is, is complicated, but I would uh, separate the, com the business for which sustainability is at the heart of their business. Okay. For instance, uh, you've got a Danish uh, wind turbine company called Orsted, you know, so they are doing this uh, wind turbine, number one in the world. They've got the highest profit last year, like 22 billion profit, if I'm not mistaken. 
Veolia, waste management, biggest profit ever, biggest growth. And I would take Tesla, because Tesla, we could challenge the battery production as non-sustainable and so on. But this business has been built like just less than 10, 20 years ago on a decarbonation pathway. And the business is extremely profitable today with an amazing uh, growth. And the business is completely disrupting automotive for decarbonation purpose. But uh, if I take Nestlé, for instance, Nestlé had a lot of risk uh, in terms of ESG uh, because it's uh, food and beverage, but a lot of, of the business is coming from agriculture. And, and the company uh, realized uh, some like 10 or 15 years ago the importance of the risk the company was facing on many of the production, like cocoa, like coffee, for instance, because of the climate warming. And that many action would have to be taken to avoid having those risk of, uh, of yield uh, decrease or in, in terms of uh, impact on business. So the company really switched to a very, very bold uh, sustainability strategy uh, many years ago. And same for Nespresso, but you can take Unilever as well. It's the same. But my preferred company is probably Patagonia. So I don't know if you know this yeah. brand. So they are doing uh, outdoor, uh, outdoor uh, closes. Uh, and this company is, is recognized as a very sustainable company. It is a very profitable company. Yeah, and they can do both because they can be sustainable. But they also can create a brand lover. And at the same time, they are not selling cheap clothes. They sell very expensive clothes. So how do these three pillars can be joined in the same company? Because I guess everyone has a business here, would like to have a brand lover, uh, very expensive products, yeah. and at the same time, sustainable products. I can take an example in my previous business in Espresso. This is now public, but the machine you have at home, and, and there are millions of those machines at home, uh, the company is making them now, uh, we call that circular. So many machines will be refurbished, like made like new because I mean, it's, uh, it's very interesting in terms of, uh, of carbon uh, decrease. And uh, a refurbished machine is having like uh, 40 to 60% less CO2 than a new machine. But for the consumer, it's the same machine, same warranty, etc., etc. And then Nespresso, in order to make it appealing, they generated a brand around it. They call that uh, Relove. So it's Nespresso Relove machine with a specific packaging, with a specific marketing. And on the first test that the company did in the US, in France, in Nordics, they saw a certain category of clients preferring to go to those products because they were sustainable, because the brand was appealing, but because the product were talking a story about decarbonation, about impact on resources. And, you know, so, and specifically, uh, the younger generation, the Gen Z, but uh, many categories of clients are now deciding to consume responsibly. So that's why companies have to really uh, recognize that there is a market as well for consumer and more and more uh, the younger generation are moving towards sustainable uh, consumption. How was the process in uh, Nestlé, in the case of Nespresso? How hard was to explain, for example, to the board that they need to do did that transformation or it was not hard at all and they, they <laughs> want, wanted to do it? Yeah, no, it was not hard at all because okay. it's, uh, I mean, large companies like, like Nestlé and uh, I mean, those companies are having very, very long-term strategies. And I was mentioning risks, but it, it was really about risk management. For a company like Nespresso, for instance, who is doing single-serve capsule, which is potentially extremely wasteful if you don't organize a very strong recycling scheme, you know? So putting a lot on, of money 
in the market to ensure that all consumers around the world can recycle the capsule and the aluminum is reused properly, that the coffee is reused properly, and so on, was really, not a survival, but a very important element for the business. And for the coffee growing, I mentioned coffee, coffee farms, but for instance, uh, since uh, decades, I would see uh, the yield of coffee production in some region in the world is decreasing because of the global warming. So you have to put the coffee trees higher in the mountains because of the global warming, which means that you've got less and less space to grow coffee. So it was an immediate risk and an immediate uh, important element for Nespresso, for instance, who's now in producing a lot of uh, regenerative agriculture practices, agroforestry practices, in order to go back to the places in cooler environments, growing trees in the coffee farms, you know, to have uh, shade and so on, and humidity. So that's, uh, that's uh, some examples. I don't know if you can share this with us, but uh, for how long was that process in Nespresso? And how much money did Nestle invest to, to do the, that transformation? <laughs> Um, Sorry, I'm a journalist. Yeah, yeah, no, no, it's a, it's a good question. So if I take Nespresso, I think the company started almost 20 years ago because it was, as I said, at the heart of the business to make sure that there was no waste or minimize the waste as much as possible. And in terms of quality, investing with farmers, because, for instance, Nespresso is, is, is working with, uh, I think, 200,000 farmers or something like that to train them and to equip them with tools, with techniques to grow the best quality of coffee. But they are paying a premium for coffee. So this premium is an investment for the company. So it's, it's really an expensive coffee at the end of the day. But it's uh, as well ensuring a very high uh, quality of coffee and securing as well the sourcing. So. It's an investment, but the business 20 years later is extremely profitable as well. Uh, I mean, the business is, is global, worldwide, and people are enjoying the, the variety of coffee, but as well this quality and the responsible sourcing that yes. Espresso is showing to have a... For sure. Uh, Pedro, let me start to... You know better the Portuguese market, of course. How hard is, the, uh, almost the same question, how hard is right now to explain the companies taking in consideration that in Portugal almost 90% of the companies are small business or medium business, how hard is to explain to the, the boards, to the, the, the entrepreneurs that there is no other way, that they have to be a sustainable business? First of all, good morning everyone and thanks to be here and thanks for the invite. Uh, of course, it's a huge, huge challenge, as Nicholas was saying. First thing is it's a huge investment to, because when we talk about ESG, we are not talking about just a compliance issue. We are talking about managing risks, changing the business, changing the way I'm serving my clients, changing production patterns, changing supply chain. So the challenges are huge. And of course, it's much easier to a, a bigger company to embrace this huge challenge. Yeah. Uh, than to a small company, of course. Yeah, of course. But um, one interesting fact is that even for smaller companies, and some of them think that they can wait until 2026, 27, 28, or even later, because that's when most of the new uh, regulation will Im directly impact what they need to do. However, Always in the last hour. Yeah. However, and this is very a very important message, bigger companies, like imagine retailers, they are demanding today a lot of information to their clients, even small clients. I was discussing this morning with some clients that one of the 
the biggest problems they are facing. It's the amount of data and information that they are received from, from requests from banks, from a lot of clients. Mm -hmm. uh, now, if you want to apply sometimes to a tax incentive from the European Union, you need to comply with a lot of ESG information. So I believe this is not a choice. Even the smallest companies will need to, to embrace this challenge. However, I assume that we need to have a, a different strategy for these smaller companies because alone it will be very difficult for them to make the change. Probably we need sector strategies that allow companies to share risks, share costs, and share the results of the developments they, they and need the, to do. The, the, the capitalization of the companies is not a problem in Portugal because when we are, we are talking about invest, but to invest you need capital. So the small business, do they have the capital to make that change even if they want? Sometimes it's hard, and one of the challenges is sometimes these changes perceived as something that is not required on short term. Mm. And most of these boards have a, a lot of daily decisions and a lot of choices they need to do, and it's very easy to postpone the harder changes, namely these kind of sustainable investments. However, we are seeing smaller companies that are doing a great job in Portugal, and sometimes together Can you give with a, other... an example? Uh, if you don't want to mention the company, it's okay. But an example of a, a sector where the, that transformation already started? An example, textile sector. Textile. They, are, they are trying to do it together with the business associations in order to be able to get big, to get access to capital that probably they will not be able to access uh, alone. alone. Yeah. And we have smaller companies that today are issuing green bonds, green loans, which are finance instruments that are linked to ESG goals and ESG KPIs. And I believe this is very interesting because I would say 10 years ago, five years ago, ESG, it was something that is related to big companies. In yeah. Portugal, just the listed companies, or most of the listed companies were publishing sustainability reports, but the smallest companies, no. But today, and we have a study from KPMG, almost 80% of the 200 biggest companies in Portugal already prepare some kind of sustainability information to the market. They already start the process. Yeah, because they, they understood are not that, already there. Yeah, they understood this is a long journey, 20 years? 20 years in okay, Nestle. Okay, so some of the companies are, are starting probably a little bit too late, so they need to, to move forward very, very fast. And just a relevant KPI for retailers. The non-conventional, the sustainable products and services are, in the last five years, growth five times higher than the conventional products or services. So our clients, the demand is requesting these kind of services. For instance, I have kids, and, and sometimes my kids say, why, why you are buying this? You can buy that. It's, it's bio something. And sometimes you know that this bio something, it's, it's greenwashing. However, it's yeah. working with the kids <laughs> and working with, with a lot of people. So I believe this is not something that the people, the, that, the, the that's companies interesting. Choice. I mean, yes. don't, don't take me wrong. Huh? When I said it's long and it's expensive, that's not the situation for all companies. You've got small companies, medium-sized companies who had to embrace, for instance, decarbonation, like already uh, three, four years ago, and switching to uh, solar panels, to a yeah. decarbonized way of producing energy, for instance, before COVID, was an investment. 
but was a smart move because look at the price of energy today, the peak of energy in the last uh, two, three years with the war in Ukraine, now it's even yeah. worse. And many companies that are still uh, very uh, fossil energy uh, uh, related are struggling with their energy yeah, bill, you know. Yeah. So it's not about only big companies moving. You can do small moves, starting step by step, and having investment that are paying off, like uh, the energy production, for instance. Yeah. It's interesting because Pedro was talking about uh, green washing. And how can we explain to businessmen, to the boards, the difference between be sustainable or uh, greenwashing? greenwashing? Well, greenwashing is, uh, I mean, when you are a company, when you are putting a lot of money in something that you believe is good, you want to show it. So you are communicating about it. Now, the question is, is this action having a real impact? By impact, I mean, okay, decreasing uh, carbon emission, improving, uh, I don't know, workers' life balance. You know, what is the impact of your action? And then I prefer to communicate the impact than communicate it what we are doing. And by the way, regulation in Europe is coming to ban greenwashing or to prevent really that companies are talking about things that are not real. So in the coming years, this is going to change and the communication, marketing department are aware of that. So most probably we will see less and less of those greenwashing uh, situations. Can you give us an example of a, a very typical greenwashing business? <laughs> <laughs> I, I always use the, the extreme case of Volkswagen and the CO2 emissions. Okay. It's easier no, because but, it's... Um, I mean, the, I think the carbon topic is, is really interesting because at the end of the day, the climate warming is related to burning fossil fuel. So coal, petrol, you burn that, you create uh, greenhouse gases and you are warming the climate. And a lot of discussions are going on the climate neutral, net zero, uh, you know, and it's becoming super confusing. And for instance, in the past years, many, many companies were and are still buying uh, called carbon credits in order to, we call that offset your emission, which means that you are not changing anything to your value chain. You're just paying. <laughs> because it's not the right time, because you don't have money now, I don't know, for many good and bad reasons, you don't change anything, but you are buying a carbon credit to compensate your emission, and then you claim that you are carbon neutral, yeah. which is true in a way, but it's not improving the problem, you know, because those carbon credits that, that you bought are not changing anything to your value chain and to your own emissions, you know. That's why now more and more companies are going to something called net zero, which is science-based target uh, related, where you need to prove that you have a proper plan to decarbonize. You need to agree on the timeline. So usually it's 2030, 2040, 2050 for the, for the biggest companies in order to achieve a zero emission. In most of the case, the technology is not even existing. So you are committing on something, hoping that the technology will help you. Now, I'm sure we will achieve that. Huh? Technology is going fast. But for many industries, they are very hard to abate emissions uh, and, uh, and solutions are not yet there. But in many cases, if you look at plastic recycling, uh, I'm very passionate by plastic. But uh, the chemical recycling technology, for instance, is really amazing. You can make from plastic oil uh, from which you can recreate a new plastic, for instance, or even a, a fuel, with, but which is not petrol-based, but plastic-based. So mm -hmm. that's very interesting. Uh, my question is, every time a company do something like greenwashing, the risk of losing clients in the medium term is higher. Yes, no? yes. Yeah, because, uh, I mean, consumers are more and more educated. I mean, 
we are here to talk about ESG, but I don't know if you at home uh, count the number of times in the day you are hearing about environment. It's yeah. every day now. It's every day because of crisis, but as well because it's the topic of the century. So more and more people are equipped with information, are developing their knowledge about it, and the average level of understanding is growing in all generations, specifically in the younger generations, and many consumers, customers, will not accept to, to see things that are wrong because they know exactly what it means. So. Pedro, uh, the question is for both of you, but I will start with Pedro. Every time you have to explain to a businessman or a board what is ESG, how difficult is that? Because ESG is not only about sustainability. It's also about the social, social uh, and environment and the governance of the company. And like uh, we were saying right now, if a company don't have the right mood with their employers and everything, they also can lose big clients in the B2B relation. So how is the best way to explain ESG to a company that never heard about it? First, it's challenging. Uh, <laughs> but I believe that my first approach is to link ESG with their business. Because when we talk to a board, they want to talk about their business and understand why ESG is important to their business. And I give a lot of examples. We are talking about clients, of course. It's one of the major topics when we talk about ESG because we need to provide sustainable services and sustainable products because the clients are demanding that. But for instance, when we discuss talent, Today, ESG is also a relevant topic when you want to attract new employees, namely younger generations, a company like KPMG that yeah. attract a lot of youngest generation. I always give this example. Five years ago, 10 years ago, the questions when we are interviewing some kids is how much years I took to become a partner, how much I will receive. Yeah. Today, I receive questions like, do you separate plastics in your building? Your energy is, is green. Can I work from home? Do you, do you have flexibility in terms of... Can I park my bike? Yeah. Can, can, <laughs> should I have a car or can I, I can buy a bike? Do you have a, a restroom to take a shower? So the challenges are different. And when we talk about money, ESG, it's important and will become more and more important when we talk about finance costs. And of course, this is to, today it's, this is a hot topic, but uh, because the regulation that Nicholas was saying is also pushing banks to show how green is the, their clients. Yeah. And therefore, they will demand a lot of information to their clients. They will increase or even deny loans to clients that are not changing their business because they don't want to have a bad KPI. Yeah. So when you talk about finance costs, this is a, a great opportunity. And as I, I mentioned before, we have a lot of new things that companies can do, like a green bond, a green loan, and we have good examples here in, mm -hmm. in the room that allow the companies to have lower costs, higher maturities, to link some investments, green investments with a specific loan. But we can also talk about uh, supply chain. When you talk about ESG, we talk about, about supply about chain, supply chain decarbonization. So it's something that is related to their business, the circle economy. It's a way to reduce costs, to reduce emissions, but also to show to a client that we are doing the same thing, but using different tools and trying to get a new experience for the client. So when I talk about CSG, I talk about all these topics. So I talk about their business, their future. I believe it's very important to show that this is not a long-term issue. This is a short-term, medium-term, and long-term issue. And the change should start now. Otherwise, uh, in five years, 10 years, 
even if you are showing these great examples. Uh, examples uh, of course, it's not an easy journey, and you, the companies need to do it. Otherwise, uh, I believe what is the real problem is the sustainability of their business. If they will be here in business, in business. if the their company year. will exist in 10 years or, or yeah. years. Nicholas, tell us a little bit about the social part of the ESG, because we are talking about sustainability. Mm -hmm. But ESG, like I was asking you, Pedro, is a lot more than only be sustainable. You, yeah. you also have to create a social environment in your company that uh, responds to the our century and more women's less discrimination salaries there are more equity tell us about about that yeah first of all when i when i've got 11 years old daughter and she keep asking me question about my job and so on and i was in esg she heard about that but she said but what is it I always start with at the end of the day esg is protecting people and protecting planet okay For the planet, we discussed it. This is climate, this is natural resources, this is biodiversity, and so on. The people is just us. So this is not outside. Huh? So this is us, this is our families, this is our employees, but this is as well the people working in your value chain, which means that you, you are a textile uh, company, you are producing all around the world uh, with suppliers in tier one, tier two, tier three, and sometimes you have no clue of what's happening in those supply chains. So the responsibility of the companies is as well to understand, even if they are not contracting directly with a tier two or tier three supplier, is really to understand what are the human rights conditions, what are the social conditions, what are the living wages, what are the, the equity situation, because you are responsible of this value chain. You are using those products, you are using this workforce. So the S story of the ESG is really for company to, yes, take care of their own employee, but which is the simplest thing, I would say, uh, some uh, yeah, gender balance and, uh, and social equity within the company, but as well with the suppliers, but as well taking care of your customer. It's making sure that you are providing uh, products that are not harming them, obviously, but that are not polluting anymore, for instance. Yeah. So, Uh, you see more and more uh, regulation on something called EPR, so that's the extended producer responsibility regulations, where more and more companies, and specifically the most polluting companies, are now responsible of the product they are putting on the market, which means that they have to take care of taking the product back or making sure that the products are recycled. Coming back to Nespresso, this is why Nespresso moved 20 years ago, because today there is a regulation on, uh, on, on that for, um, for single-use packaging, but this is now happening to textile industry, this is now happening to many sectors where you have to take care of your product even if you sold them. And then you have to take care of the governance also, so the governance of the company, because it's a, it's a top-down issue, right? Governance is uh, how you manage to make it happen. So uh, either, I mean, governance is not a new topic. I mean, governance have been there since uh, the business exists. Huh? It's how you are organizing your company, what's the strategic uh, planning, uh, what's the management organization, the policies, and so on and so forth. So this has been existing for years. Now the question is how efficient your governance have been to transform your business to more sustainable ways of working, you know? And very often it's a challenge because even if for large companies you have been an efficient governance in place, but not efficient on what was asked to reduce carbon emissions, for instance. And this is for me a very the carbon again. I'm always coming back to that, but this is very interesting because carbon is becoming a kind of new currency in the companies. 
many decisions now that you take must consider when you are designing a new product, for instance, when you are drawing the first element of what the future product will look like, the marketing people, the procurement people have already to include how much carbon this product will generate. And they have to make sure that this product will generate 20, 30, 40% less. They have to consider that this product will have to be recycled at the end of its life. So it has to be designed to be dismantled, repaired, not harming, not polluting, you know. So this is completely new ways of working for all functions and all departments in the organization. And the governance is there to make sure that this is happening in an efficient way. Uh, Nicolas, thank you so much for this interesting conversation. Pedro, thank you. Thank you to Kappa PMG also for being with us today. Thank you.